Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Why do you think that your moral views are correct? Let me ask you a few questions. What would you have thought about slavery if you were white and lived in the South in 1840? What would you have thought about abortion if you lived anywhere in the U.S. in 1840? What would you have thought about homosexuality and same-sex marriage if you lived anywhere in the world in 1840? You probably would have been a person of your time. You probably would have been for slavery and against abortion and against homosexual behavior, and you would have absolutely laughed at anyone suggesting same-sex marriage. You would have been a person of your time, and I probably would have been too. Likewise, the founding fathers were products of their time. Just like you, they got some things right and they got some things wrong. By the way, they did not invent slavery. Most cultures had it at the time. And I was on, uh, happened to be on Robert uh, George's Facebook page. Robert George uh, is a professor at Princeton University, conservative Catholic. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Neil Coyle posted this on his Facebook page. Here's what he said. He said, I sometimes ask students what their position on slavery would have been had they been white and living in the South before abolition. Guess what? They all would have been abolitionists. They all would have bravely spoken out against slavery and worked tirelessly, tirelessly against it. Of course, this is nonsense. Only the tiniest fraction of them or any of us would have spoken up against slavery or lifted a finger to free the slaves. Most of them and us would have gone along. Many would have supported the slave system and happily benefited from it. So I respond by saying that I will credit their claims if they can show evidence of the following, that in leading their lives today, they have stood up for the rights of unpopular victims of Injustice whose very humanity is denied, and where they have done so knowing these five things. Number one, that it would make them unpopular with their peers. Number two, that they would be loathed and ridiculed by powerful, influential individuals and institutions in our society. Number three, that they would be abandoned by many of their friends. Number four, that they would be called nasty names. And number five, they would risk being denied valuable professional opportunities as a result of their moral witness. In short, my challenge is to show that they have at risk to themselves and their future stood up for a cause. That is unpopular in elite sectors of our culture today. That's from Mr. Neil Coyle. I don't know who he is, but he was on Robert George's Facebook page. I submit to you he's exactly right. That very few people are willing to be unpopular. Very few people are willing to be loathed and ridiculed by powerful, influential individuals and institutions in our society. Very few people are willing to be abandoned by many of their friends or called nasty names or risk being denied valuable professional opportunities as a result of their moral witness. 
You know what I really see going on in America today? A lot of selective moralizing. And I'll get to that in a minute. But let me say that Pascal's little dictum rings more true now than ever. And that's this, that people invariably base their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. In other words, people follow what they find attractive too often. Not because it's true, but because they find it attractive. Many of us are not on a truth quest, we're on a happiness quest, and we're just going to believe whatever we think we find attractive. This sword cuts through all different religions. It cuts through all different ideologies. Christians are not immune to this. A lot of Christians are just Christians because they find it attractive. They don't even know why it's true. They just think it's attractive. And there are many atheists who are atheists, not because they can somehow disprove Christianity or prove atheism is true. It's just because they find atheism and non-accountability attractive. Now, what's especially attractive today? Well, sexual license is especially attractive today. That's why these deconstructions we hear about virtually every couple of weeks in the social media, these worship pastors and prominent Christians suddenly moving away from Christianity, that nearly always these deconstructions nearly always involve a, reje a rejection of the Christian ethic, the Christian sexual ethic. There'll be some, something about LGBTQ folks in there, and that's really why they're not Christians anymore. It's not because they've discovered that somehow Christianity's false or the moral precepts of Christianity are false by some sort of objective standard. No, they've just decided that they don't like that standard. And, and by the way, Paul, the great apostle, who wrote 13 books in the New Testament out of the 27, in his very last book, his very last letter, 2 Timothy, in the last chapter of that last letter, writes this to Timothy. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Wait for it. Here's what, he, here's what he goes on to say. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will, turn, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge the duties of your ministry. People are not going to put up with sound doctrine. They're going to go and hear whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll put teachers around them that will say what they want to hear. Now let's go back to this issue of moral um, or selective moralizing in today's culture. Let's go back to the founding fathers for a minute. When you criticize the founding fathers or anyone else for their moral stances, you are implicitly appealing to a fixed moral standard, the one that Paul says we're going to give up because we want to do our own thing in 2 Timothy. You're implicitly appealing to a fixed moral standard outside of yourself that you think everyone should obey. By the way, that is not relativism. <laughs> that is... That is objectivism. There's a standard out there that everyone ought to obey. Now, the question is, what is that standard? If you're an atheist, what is it? As I've said a million times, if, if all we are are molecules in motion and there is no immaterial realm, that standard, that moral standard doesn't exist because morality is not made of molecules. So if you're an atheist, what is it? You don't have a standard. You're protesting without a standard. You're moralizing without a standard. 
And by the way, do you always live up to that standard, whatever it is? Do I live up to God's fixed standards? No, I don't. And you don't either. That's why we need a savior. But at least believers have a fixed standard, God, that is good, authoritative, and to whom all are accountable. Now, we are all selective moralizers in our behavior because we're all fallen. None of us are perfect. Yet we say one thing and we do another. We get that. We're hypocrites in that regard. Everyone is. Nobody lives up to, to the, no Christian lives up to, to, to the Christian ethic. It's impossible. Only Jesus could. We hope to live up to it. We ask God's help to live up to it, but we fail. And no atheist even lives up to his own standards. No non-believer lives up to their own standards. Because they're all fallen as well. But we shouldn't be selective moralizers in our proclamations. Despite the fact we can't live up to the standard, we should proclaim the right standard. In fact, I had a debate uh, five years ago with Michael Shermer on what best explains morality, God or science. And he's an atheist, as you know. And he started preaching the moral rightness of same-sex marriage. He was raising his voice because I didn't agree with him. He was, he was ranting and raving. And I finally, after he stopped, I said, Michael, you're doing a lot of moralizing for an evolved primate. I mean, where are you getting this standard from? Now, Michael Shermer, to his credit, is not a cancel culture person. He believes in free speech. In fact, he has a new book on free speech. Right after the debate, we actually wrote a column together on the Huffington Post. And it has more relevance now than even then. It's called Tolerance and Totalitarianism. You can look it up. And when we come back from the break, I'll explain to you why we wrote that. And then talk more about selective moralizing that's going on in our country right now. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. We're back in two. Friends, can you help me with something? Can you go up to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a five-star review? Why? It will help more people see this podcast and therefore then hear it. So if you could help us out there, I'd greatly appreciate it. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. You're not going to hear this on NPR. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking about the selective moralizing going on in our culture right now. And uh, just before the break, I was discussing uh, Michael Shermer, a friend of mine who's an atheist. And I was saying we had a debate at Stony Brook University back in 2015 what happened after the debate, after Michael Shermer brought up same-sex marriage and we disagreed on it, there was a group on campus that was upset that I was even given the forum to express my views on that issue in a university. They were the they were uh, some LGBT group that protested us. So Michael and I got together and we said, we got to write a column against this, that, that these people won't even allow free speech. This is the cancel culture, uh, the cancel culture people. And this was five years ago at Stony Brook. And if you just Google Huffington Post, uh, Shermer, Turek, you'll find it. Tolerance and totalitarianism is the name of it. Now, Michael believes in free speech, and he came out against these people that wanted to shut me up. But today, there's no grace in the left's invented standard of morality. Not only is it wrong on many issues, it's Marxist and totalitarian. The, the Black Lives Matter group is a Marxist organization. Just go to Black Lives Matter and read their website. 
Now, you can be for the idea that Black Lives Matter because they do and be completely against the organization because it's a Marxist organization that is completely unbiblical. They want to destroy the family. They want to support sexual anarchy. They want to support everything LGBTQ political goals, which would take away certain rights of, of, of everybody else. And and they they are. Well, you just got to go read their website. I, I think I read some of it a few sessions ago here on the uh, radio program on the podcast but it's it's Marxist and totalitarianism. And too often, this standard is built on the on envy of what others have, not true injustice. Equality of treatment under the law is correct and admirable. That's what we have in our in our laws here in the United States of America. But equality of outcome is impossible in this world of differing talents, of differing motivations and of differing circumstances that people have. You realize we won't even have equality in heaven. No, there's going to be levels of rewards in heaven because that's justice. That's what justice is. People get what they deserve. So it's not injustice to say that people wind up in different places. It is injustice to say that laws treat different people differently. That shouldn't happen. We should have a quality of treatment under the law. That's what our, that's what our justice system and our, our constitution is is based on. I, I don't know if you happen to see this, but on Wednesday there was an article on the Daily Wire. This BLM organization, or at least people saying that they support BLM, uh, has stormed a church in Troy, New York, last week. It's all on the Daily Wire. So now they're they're going into churches. They uh, I think they assaulted the pastor. They interfered with people's worshiping and getting in and out of the church. This is not peaceful, ladies and gentlemen. This is not peaceful protest. You don't go into private property and disrupt a church service, but that's what they're doing. One other thing I've noticed, do you notice that no one is saying that the statues must come down because those people didn't believe in homosexuality, same-sex marriage, or abortion? It was just about slavery. Now, why is that? Is it just because racism is on our minds? Or could it be that deep in the hearts, we know that the founding fathers were right about the immorality of homosexual behavior, same-sex marriage, and abortion, that there was no way they should have thought those things were, 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 uh, were wrong? Or there's no way they should have thought that they were wrong about those things. But on slavery, they should have known that they were wrong. That seems, that seems right. They actually did know slavery was wrong, but they couldn't establish a union without compromise. In fact, they put the seeds of slavery's abolition in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, and in the Constitution. You say, well, how did they do it in the Constitution? Isn't there, wasn't there that three-fifths clause where they said that, that uh, slaves were three-fifths of a person in Article 1 of Section 2? The three-fifths clause in there is in there. But it's a myth to say that they thought blacks were three-fifths of a person for a number of reasons. Number one, freed blacks were considered a whole person. And the reason that three-fifths is in there is because they had to create a union and folks in the South wouldn't sign on to the union um, unless there was some sort of compromise. So here's what happened. In the Constitution, the number of a state's representatives was proportional to its population or is proportional to its population. The pro-slavery people wanted slave states to be able to count 100% of their slaves for purposes of apportionment. 
so that they would have greater influence in, in Congress. And the people in the North are saying, wait a minute, you're saying that those people are just property. How, how can they be considered a full person? They're just property. Should we be able to count our horses as, as, uh, as citizens so we can get more representatives in the North here? That's what the North was saying. And so there was this argument going back and forth. The anti-slavery people, most of the folks in the North, didn't want slave states to be able to count slaves at all. They wanted it to be zero, not because they thought slaves were, weren't a, a full person. It's because they didn't want the South to have more power to keep slavery uh, as part of the law of the land. They wanted to ultimately outvote them. They didn't think the barbarous practice of slavery should be rewarded. So the three-fifths compromise was the best they could get. It wasn't against slaves, but for them. You see the point? So it's, it, and then later on, Dred Scott misinterpreted. Dred Scott was a case that came in the 1850s. It said blacks were three-fifths of a person, but that's not what the Constitution said. The Constitution was trying to limit the power of the South. The three-fifths clause remained in force until the post-Civil War 13th Amendment, which freed all enslaved people in the United States. And the 14th Amendment gave them full citizenship. And the 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote. By the way, that is how you change the Constitution. You don't have some unelected justices on the Supreme Court decide that the Constitution is going to change. You go through the amendment process. That's why it's there. So it wasn't some case where they just said, OK, blacks are now citizens. And as, as much as we agree with that, or blacks now have the right, the, the right to vote as much as we agree with that. It's that they had to amend the Constitution by the means the Constitution granted them, because that's what laws do. You go by the law. And they did that. Now. Am I saying that morality is culturally relative? That whatever culture you're in, that's what you're going to believe? No. Morality is not culturally relative. Sociology is, coach, is culturally relative. What people believe about morality is often socially relative. Now, what they believe about it and what they, what, what they truly believe in their conscience is a different thing. I'm going to get to that in a minute. What they say they believe about it and what they really know to be true, it, they can be two different things. Tim Keller makes this point uh, in one of his sermons. By the way, keep praying for Tim Keller. He's got pancreatic cancer, as you know. And thank you for the prayers for my dad. I appreciate all those and my family. But let me, let me go to what Tim Keller said recently. He said, if, if you look at the Bible's prohibition, or let's say the Bible's rules on sexual behavior uh, in the United States, you'd say, wow, those are too restrictive. But if you took those... If, if you look at the Bible's rules on sexual behavior in some areas in the Middle East, they're going to go, hey, those rules are correct, or maybe they're not even strict enough. On the other hand, if you look what the Bible says about loving your enemies here in the West, you might go, that's wonderful. That's good. Yeah, we should love our enemies. But in the Middle East, some areas of the Middle East, they'll say, love your enemies. You're nuts. What are you talking about? You'll never get anywhere if you love your enemies. Now, notice those two cultures disagree and they are both right and both wrong on different issues. The sexual rules are correct. Folks in the Middle East, if they look at the Bible and they look at what the Bible says about sexual behavior, that's correct. They're right about that. Whereas the folks here in the West are wrong. But the folks here in the West have love your enemies down. They agree with that, but they disagree with what the, 
Middle Eastern folks say, love your enemies, that's nuts. The Middle Eastern folks are wrong on that point. Now, Keller goes on to say, if the Bible really is the word of God, and of course he thinks it is, and we've given evidence it is, wouldn't it be that every culture would be challenged by some aspect of the scripture? Because every culture has something wrong. Every culture isn't following the scriptures precisely. So there would be things in every culture you would disagree with if you go with the culture. Uh, you, you would disagree with the Bible in some way if you go with the culture. Because the Bible just tells the truth about right and wrong. And cultures need to get in line with it. To say that the Bible is out of step with the culture would be like saying Moses was out of step with the golden calf. Yeah, we get it. Okay. The Bible should challenge us. And for Christians, as you know, that's predominantly the New Testament. The New Testament should challenge us and should cause us to think differently about certain moral issues that our culture, uh, our culture believes one way. The Bible should challenge us to think another way. So how do we actually know right from wrong? Well, we have two ways of knowing what's right. We have conscience, which is sometimes called natural law, and the scriptures. In fact, I would argue you can't not know certain things are right and wrong. In fact, my friend Jay Bujashevsky, who teaches at UT Austin, a moral law philosopher, has written a book called What We Can't Not Know. And he points out that in Romans 2, that Paul actually tells us that God gives us a conscience. When he says, when the Gentiles do not have the law, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness. And he goes, he goes further. He says, Budyshevsky says, conscious in this sense is not something merely pumped in from the outside by socialization. God has written it on the heart. So it's one thing to know something, but quite another to know that you know it or to admit it. And he draws a distinction between surface conscience and deep conscience. Surface conscience can go astray through bad propaganda, through bad teaching, through cultural pressure. Surface conscience can go away, but deep conscience is ineradicable. He said, to put this another way, you can make an honest mistake about the details of morality, but if you get the big picture wrong, you haven't made an honest mistake. You're in denial. The problem of our time isn't intellectual. It's volitional. It isn't that we don't know what we're doing is wrong. It's that we know it and we pretend we don't. As Paul puts in Romans 1, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness to go our own way. We don't want it to be true because we have our eye on something we want and we want to take a shortcut together, whether it's sex, money, or power. So we know what's right, but we suppress the truth about right, about what's right, because we want to do our own thing, because we want to sin. Now we'll continue with this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes, so don't go anywhere. Friends, Frank Turek here. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. So if you like what you hear here, would you consider donating to crossexamined.org? 100% of your donations go to ministry. 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. So if you can help us out, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
great Worldview Camp Summit Ministries has gone completely virtual. Easy for me to say. <laughs> but we're still teaching there. I'm still teaching there. Many other folks you know about are teaching there. You can be a part of Summit Virtual this summer if you're a young person. Just go to summit.org and sign up, and I'll see you via Zoom. And uh, don't forget, we are still going, at least planning to go to Israel this September. What a trip that's going to be. If you want to be a part of that, I'll be there with my friend Eli Shukran, the great Israeli archaeologist who excavated the entire city of David practically by himself and discovered an ancient temple there and, of course, discovered the Pool of Siloam. He's going to be our guide. He has the keys to places that other people don't have. We're going to stay at the best hotels and go to the best restaurants and really see Israel in a VIP way. So if you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on events. You'll see the Israel trip there. It's this September. And then in February, we're doing the Mount Sinai tour, going through Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, and on to Israel. So you might want to be a part of that as well. Check all the details on our website. We're talking today about selective moralizing. There's a lot of people out there selectively moralizing about certain things going on in our culture. And we were just talking before the break about Jay Budzhevsky's book, What We Can't Not Know, and he's just amplifying what's taught in the Bible, that you know basic right and wrong on the big issues. The Bible may give you more details, but on the big issues, what we would call maybe the Ten Commandments, we all intuitively know, at least most of them anyway, and we can suppress that truth, or we can be talked out of it by bad teaching, by social pressure, by propaganda. And so we always have to check ourselves. Look, we all know it's wrong to enslave or murder human beings. But in order to justify those practices, we often redefine what a human being is. Or we say a human being is not really a human being like you are. Like, as I mentioned earlier, Dred Scott, the famous Dred Scott decision, misunderstood the Constitution and said that blacks were only three-fifths of a person. That's dehumanizing blacks. That's not what the Constitution said, but that's basically what the court basically said. Some tribes today say that other tribes are not human. That's how they can, they can um, justify killing them and in some cases even eating them. They know cannibalism is wrong intuitively, but they just define the people who are not in their tribe as not human. The Nazis said the Jews were subhuman. That's how the Nazis were able to get their SS to kill the Jews. They just made it seem like the Jews were not human. Because in their hearts, they knew that you don't kill innocent human beings. So what do they do? They try and change the fact that Jewish people are human beings or homosexuals are human beings or Jehovah's Witnesses are human beings or gypsies are human beings. Those were the four groups that the Nazis wanted to kill. So they just dehumanized them. Today, some Muslims are actually teaching the Jews are pigs. There's a BBC documentary that reveals this, where it says that some 5,000 Muslim children are being taught from Saudi textbooks in England. This is a few years ago, which teaches that the Jews are transformed from pigs to apes. Sounds a lot like the theory of macroevolution. Anyway, this is what's being taught. And today, many on the left have declared that unborn babies are not human. They're not persons. They're just blobs of tissues. I say to you, if that's, one of, if, if, if that's who you are, if you're a selective moralizer, why are you against racism but not against the murder of the unborn? 
look, I understand you don't have to protest everything to protest something. I mean, okay, yeah, protest racism, but don't overlook an even bigger issue where people are literally dying by the thousands every day. I mean, why are you shaming people for not hashtagging the Marxist BLM the way you think they should hashtag that, whatever that means, but you're actually supporting the killing of black children in the womb? Hundreds of thousands of black babies are killed by abortion each year in this country. There were nine unarmed blacks killed by police last year, but hundreds of thousands of black babies are killed each year in the United States. In fact, since 1973, 20 million blacks have been killed by abortion. 20 million. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which generally supports abortion, as you know, let's use stats from 2011. There were 360,000 black babies aborted. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control for 2011, that same year, it showed that there were 287,000 black deaths occurring from all other causes, excluding abortion. In other words, abortion is the leading cause of death among blacks in this country. That was 2011. I don't think it's changed since then. More people die from abortion than all other causes combined. More other blacks do in the United States. In fact, this was actually pointed out by a, a black gentleman who is a member of the Arizona State Congress. His name is Walt Blackman. He had an article on this in the Arizona Capital Times back in February. He's pointing this out. He calls it abortion, the overlooked tragedy for black Americans. Interestingly, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a New York Post column that um, uh, talked about uh, the Teddy Roosevelt statue in the in the Natural History Museum in New York being taken down. And uh, here's a quote from the article about Teddy Roosevelt. It says, the problem relates to his stances on racial issues, as well as his support for eugenics and the sterilization of the poor and intellectually disabled in the later years of his life. Unquote. Newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly how Planned Parenthood began, supporting eugenics. The killing of black babies. And yet you're supporting Planned Parenthood and you want to rip down a statue of, of Teddy Roosevelt? Can, you, can we get our priorities straight here? Now, we should be ashamed of racism. As I've said a, a number of times on this program, racism is a sin. There's only one race, the human race. However, selective moralizers, I hope that, that some future generations or some future generation will be shaming us for supporting abortion and insisting there are no differences between the sexes and for insisting there are no moral or health differences between same sex and opposite sex behavior and for insisting that marriage is genderless and it really isn't about children. Ladies and gentlemen, if marriage isn't about children, what organization is about children? What institution is about children? Black Lives Matter wants to completely eradicate the nuclear family. It is in their on their website. And you're going to go around hashtagging that? Yes, Black Lives Matter. Let me say that again. They're, everyone matters. Everyone's a human being made in the likeness and image of God. There's only one race, the human race. But that doesn't mean you should be supporting a Marxist, unbiblical organization. So, yes, speak out and act against the injustice of racism. But don't ignore the fact that you are a selective moralizer if you support the injustices of abortion and sexual anarchy. Now, as we, we've covered in a previous program, we've said before here, 
that true Christianity is the answer to all this. If people lived by a proper interpretation of the Bible, or even just the natural law upon which our country was founded, we hold these truths to be self-evident, there would be no slavery. There would be no racism. There would be no abortion. There would be no sexual anarchy. And there would be no abandonment of children, which is what making marriage genderless does. I didn't hope I was going to have to say this, but I have to say it anyway, because it needs to be said. It takes me to Justice Roberts in the United States Supreme Court. A week or so ago, the court decided an issue regarding abortion doctors needing admitting privileges to hospitals. Um, in his dissent four years ago, Justice Roberts, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, said that a Texas law requiring that, requiring admitted privileges for doctors, for abortion doctors, is constitutional. That was four years ago. This year, an almost identical Louisiana law came up to the Supreme Court. And the majority struck down that law because according to them, not only does the Constitution say that the mom has a right to a dead baby, according to them, of course, it's nowhere in the Constitution. The so-called doctor who kills your baby doesn't really have to be able to admit the mom to the hospital if something else goes wrong, such as not only the baby is dead, but the mom may die as well because the doctor can't admit her to the hospital. So four years ago, Robert said that the Constitution allows a state to require admitting privileges for abortion. He wrote that in his dissent for abortion doctors. But this week, this year, he says that the Constitution prevents a state from requiring admitting privilege. It's the same law, basically. And he even said it in the decision. Even though I think that the opinion from four years ago is wrong, I'm going to follow it. What? The Constitution hasn't changed in four years. What's changed? Roberts has changed in four years. He's violating his oath of office to support and defend the Constitution against the United States, uh, the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It seems to me he's now an enemy of the Constitution. He knows the law is constitutional. That's why he said that four years ago. But now he's saying the law is unconstitutional. Why? Because he's more interested in following the precedent of the court than following the Constitution. Here's what I said in a tweet. Roberts apparently believes it's a constitutional right, nowhere actually stated or implied in the Constitution, to rip apart children in the womb, and he will only vote against that belief when his vote doesn't matter. If that's not politics on the court, I don't know what is. Yeah, that's politics on the court. Why is it that no one ever changes his mind to do the right thing on the Supreme Court? Roberts had it right the first time. He changed it for a political reason. He should be, I'm just going to say it, he should be impeached, as should every judge who does not consistently interpret the Constitution as written. And most of the time, that's Kagan, Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer. Look, you took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. When you're not reading the Constitution as written, why even have one? If you're just going to make things up as you go, that's not a Constitution. As Justice Scalia famously said, what is a modern interpretation of the Constitution? Halfway between what it really means and what you want it to mean? Look, if you want the Constitution to say something else, then convince your fellow citizens to amend it. That's why the amendment process is in there. That's what we did with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. That's what we did to give women the right to vote. That's why we have a Constitution amendment process. 
to do these things. You don't just get on the court and have five people impose their will on 335 million people. But that's what the Supreme Court has been doing. And this is why appointments are so important. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be this way. Everybody should go by what the Constitution says. And you say, well, these were Republican appointees. Yes, I know. Sometimes Republicans appoint bad justices. The problem is Democrats always support bad justices, always appoint bad justices. Sometimes with the Republicans, you got a shot of getting a good justice. With the Democrats, you never have a shot because they are ideologues that want to impose a leftist point of view on the entire nation without the approval of the people. That's what we call tyranny, ladies and gentlemen. And next time, I'll actually tell you what I really feel. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We've got a lot more. Don't go away. We're talking about selective moralizers. We're back in just two minutes. Don't forget about the Israel trip coming up this September. See you in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. If you're liberal or conservative, you should want what I just said before the break, that the people decide how they govern themselves, not five unelected lawyers on the Supreme Court. All right, now I need to go to a new subject here. We haven't been able to talk about this because uh, we've had other things come up. I've been gone with my dad and other issues, but I want to go back to this issue of racism for just a minute. Because not every inequality between ethnic groups is due to racism. Again, let me say this again. There's only one race, the human race. But not every inequality you say, say between the white ethnic group and say the black ethnic group is due to racism because correlation does not necessarily prove causation. And when we look at statistics, we need to be sure that we found a causal connection and not just a correlation. Correlation doesn't necessarily prove causation. Look, the rooster crowing correlates with the sun coming up, but the rooster is not causing the sun to come up. So to determine if there's a true causal connection, you must establish three things. And my my friend and former professor at uh, George Washington University, Dr. Bill Adams, would love me saying this because he always said in, in the class we took on statistics, if you don't remember anything else, remember these three things. If you're trying to make a causal connection, you need to establish three things. Let me explain this. X precedes Y. That's number one. Number two, X and Y co-vary. And number three, there are no Zs. Now, what does this mean? I'll, I'll use an example from, uh, say, smoking. Okay. X precedes Y, meaning that smoking comes before cancer. If you want to establish a causal connection, the smoking must come before the cancer, not the other way around. Number two, X and Y co-vary. That means, say, more smoking gives you more cancer and less smoking gives you less cancer across the population. So if they co-vary, you might have a causal connection. Now, what about the third thing? No Zs. That means there are no other causes causing the effect you're seeing. Uh, for example, uh, if you just have a population of, say, um, 
coal miners. Okay, are they getting cancer from smoking or the fact that they they're 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 involved in coal mining? There might be another cause. In other words, you got to weed out that other cause. And so, when it comes to racism. If we're going to say that racism is causing, say, poor economic outcomes, for example, we have to assume that X precedes Y, X and Y co-vary. We have to establish these things. And there are no other factors, no other things that might cause a lower result economically. Now, what it look, what is probably the biggest reason rather than systematic bias of the system? for blacks doing more poorly socioeconomically. Certainly in the past, yes, laws were unjust. There was redlining. There were all these things we've talked about in previous shows, right? Obviously, in the past, there were problems in our laws. But it seems to me that probably now, and probably, I say probably because it's hard to establish causation in social science uh, questions, You've got, to, you've got to meet all these three criteria, and it's, it can sometimes be hard to do that. But it seems to me, I agree with President Obama. He said fatherlessness is the biggest problem in the black community. Shelby Steele, a, a black uh, intellectual, said, our families have fallen to pieces. 75% of all black children are born out of wedlock without a father. He said, I don't care how many social progr- programs you have, you're not going to overcome that. Denzel Washington, a brilliant uh, man who's not just an actor, he's like a motivational speaker. He doesn't d- dismiss the fact that the system might disadvantage blacks. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to mention here a couple of ways I think the system does disadvantage blacks in just a minute. But he doesn't, he doesn't dismiss that. But he says that fatherlessness in the black community is the far bigger cause of those poor outcomes. In fact, he said when he was a kid, you know, he had a father figure that kept him from going down the wrong road. Two of his friends didn't have father figures. They've been in prison for 20 years. Now, what are some ways that I think the system disadvantages blacks or the poor? One is actually the welfare system because it rewards fatherlessness. I don't know the answer to this problem, but it is a problem. If we're paying people, women, to have kids out of wedlock, we are just perpetuating poverty and crime. And that's what our welfare system does. The other systematic problem in today's in, 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 in today's America, as I see it anyway, is the public school system. It's a monopolistic system that creates a systematic problem. Why? Because it rewards bad results by protecting a monopoly and preventing parents from choosing a better school for their children. In places like Washington, D.C., where they put school choice in. Minority kids have done much better. But guess who tried to shoot down that program? President Obama. In fact, the Democrats don't want school choice. They want to protect their constituency because their constituency are the teachers unions. And the teacher unions don't want any competition. If you want to give minority kids a better shot, put them in a better school. How do you do that? You give them school choice. The Republicans want that. The Democrats don't. Now, one particular problem here, as I mentioned earlier, is fatherlessness. Do you realize that among um, the different ethnic groups, unfortunately, um, only among all of them together in the United States, 
Only 45% of kids who reach the age of 17 have their mother and father in the home with them, still married. Now, the, the ethnic group that does the best are the, are, is the Asian eth- ethnic group. 62% of kids who reach 17 have, a father, have the mother and father still married in the home. Uh, whites, 54%. Hispanic, 40%. American Indian, Alaskan Native, 23%. Blacks, 17%. Only 17% of black teenagers age 17 are in a home with their mother and father and they're married. That's a disaster. In fact, it's a disaster for all these ethnic groups. It should be way over 80%. So... That problem is a huge problem. It's a bigger problem than any systematic issue we have. And we can argue whether there are systematic biases in there. I've already uh, highlighted two of them, the welfare system and the public school system, in my view. Maybe there are others. You know, the other interesting thing is that many athletes are supporting the Marxist BLM organization, yet they have their platform from capitalism. I mean, the great quarterback Patrick Mahomes just this week signed a deal that will pay him about $50 million a year over the next 10 years. Now, I say more power to him if he can get that great. But if BLM had their way, he wouldn't have that private property. He would have to give that money away because there is no private property in Marxism. The rich are the oppressors, according to the Marxist. And by the way, he wouldn't have a platform either to make that money. Or to even say what he wants to say, because all the venues that give him a platform, sports, TV, social media, his sponsors, the Internet, they're all money making capitalist organizations. Now, I don't I don't know uh, Patrick Mahomes stand on any of this stuff. I know LeBron James stand on it. Well, it's the same thing for LeBron James. He's making millions of dollars because of capitalism. His talents are such that he can maximize his income. More power to him. But at the same time, don't support an, a Marxist organization that would take all that away from you. If you want to, if if you want to say Black Lives Matter, they do, as I've said a hundred times. But don't support the organization, which would actually depress the very minorities you're trying to help. The best way to create more wealth is through a regulated capitalistic system. You don't create more wealth through Marxism. It's a misunderstanding of human nature. And in fact, probably the easiest way for me to communicate this to you is this. When was the last time you washed a rental car? Never. Why? Because you don't own it. If you don't own it, you don't tend to take care of it. Private property causes people to work hard. If you can enjoy the fruits of your labor, you're going to work harder. If you, if you can't get any fruits of your labor, why should you work? Why shouldn't you just be the free rider who lets other people work for you? William Bradford found that out when he started this country or when he came over with the pilgrims, that if we had a community farm, we didn't produce as much food. If we gave each household a plot of land to farm for themselves, wow, we had more than enough food. Let me sum all this up this way when it comes to our country. You don't judge a philosophy or a country merely by its abuse. You judge it by its ideals. The United States proclaimed equal treatment under the law for all because of the creator, that all are made in the image of God, that we're endowed by our creator. You can't improve upon that in any declaration or law. That's equality under the law for everyone. How can you get better than that? You can't. 
Now, we haven't always lived up to our ideals, but no country in history has, eat, has done so either because all countries are made of flawed human beings. All police forces have flawed human beings. All sports teams have flawed human beings. All, all groups of accountants are made of flawed human beings. All, all teachers have flawed. We're all flawed. No country in history, however, has had our supreme founding. No country in history went to war with itself to end slavery. So when you kneel before the flag, it really looks to me like you're protesting what the flag stands for, not how fallen people behave. What the flag stands for is equality for all. Why would you kneel on that? That's what you want. Yeah, protest the people who are not living up to those ideals, including yourself, because if you're a selective moralizer, you're not living up to them either. Look, if you want to protest something, protest the unjust behavior of a few not the entire country whose ideals are justice for all. Also, protest the problem that's actually killing thousands of minorities each day. That's abortion. Change that, and you have stopped a great injustice, maybe the greatest injustice that we could have, killing innocent, helpless people. Don't be a selective moralizer. If you want to be against racism, and you should, great. But don't let it end there. All right, great being with you today, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Frank Turek. Website's crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it. And uh, check that out. Check out our new online courses coming up here in the fall on that website. And you can also check out the trips we have coming up to Israel. And later on next year to the real Mount Sinai. See you next week. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.